This is 4L with Ryan O'Neill and Rebecca DeCoster. So we're back to Coster. It's been a few weeks. Well, because you refused to record when you were incapacitated. Yeah. So for those who don't know, I had some surgery done and Rebecca was strongly suggesting that we record an entire podcast episode while I was on painkillers. It would have been lit. It would have been probably the best episode we'll ever make, but it also would have resulted in me being fired. So, well, we don't need that. <laughs> that seemed like it was probably not the best idea. Um, so today we're going to do, we have not done a guest yet. This is our first guest podcast interview. I'm so excited right now. I am I'm too. super excited because we have a guest like it's a real podcast. And not just because she's our friend, but she really is the state's foremost expert in paternity law. That's true. All, so, my, all my questions about paternity and revocation of paternity go straight to our special guest, who is... Kate Weaver! Kate Weaver! Yay! Yay! Thanks for having Yay. me. Awesome. I can't believe I'm your first guest. You are yes. the first guest on Oakland County's number one podcast for legal news by two referees. <laughs> And for those who don't know, Kate Weaver is also an Oakland County friend of the court referee and previously was in Wayne County prior to that, right? That's right. So Kate Weaver is also my supervisor, so it's very important that I say nothing but nice things about her today. You got to toe the line. <laughs> you got to toe the line today. We can be honest. Best so, supervisor ever. Kate, we invited you here to talk about paternity and all that touches paternity. That was probably poor phrasing, but um, <laughs> you know it's my favorite topic because I know it is. You the genuinely facts are the best. You love it and are passionate about it. So, um, and it can be complicated for people who don't deal with it a lot. So. What I'd like to do is give you a hypothetical and we'll kind of walk through it and you can educate me and Ryan who don't know that much about paternity um, and who ask all of our questions to you because why learn something new when Kate knows everything? Uh, <laughs> so the um, hypothetical has me nervous and so I picked up my pen because I always joke that you need a whiteboard whenever you're doing a paternity or revocation of paternity fat pattern. Well, I'd, I'll tell you up front that if you need special assistance while we're going through the hypothetical, there are family trees for this hypothetical available online. Um, and for those of you who did not watch Game of Thrones, I'll walk through it a little slowly, but for those of you who did, you'll know who I'm talking about up top. So let's say my name is Cersei Lannister. Um, but I live in Michigan in the year 2021, um, but I am married to King Robert Baratheon. And during our marriage, I give birth to three children who shockingly look nothing like my husband, but do look an awful lot like me and also my biological brother. 
<laughs> my first question is, if I know as Cersei Lannister that the three children that I birthed are not my husband's, right? What happens? Am I under some sort of duty to disclose that? Are they considered to be my children, but not his children? They were born while we were married, but what does the law presume about those children that were born during my marriage? So they, in, here in Michigan, they are uh, definitely presumed to be a product of the marriage. So they are, so automatically the husband goes on the birth certificate. There's no need for anyone to sign anything or do anything. Michigan law, you know, would require that Robert Baratheon uh, is on their birth certificate as their legal father. So even if he's not present at the birth at the hospital, like he's off hunting or um, in a brothel or, or doing any of the things that King Robert Baratheon would do, he's not present, the hospital's still gonna require him to be on the birth certificate. Correct, it's just a, a really a matter of vital records. So they would see there's a marriage license and a husband and then, you know, so it's really a matter of course that they would just be adding Yep, he does not need to be present. So what if I lie and say that I'm not married? What happens? So they don't, it's not really a question that's asked there at the hospital. It's really, again, like a vital records matter. So they'll just be looking um, into the vital record. So sometimes like they'll miss it if it's an out-of-state marriage, but if there's, you know, an in-state marriage license uh, and, uh, and say, you know, Cersei's brother was in the hospital and trying to sign or, or you know, it, it wouldn't be accepted just because the vital records, the slots are already full. Okay. I didn't know that. I've always wondered that. Like, what if I just... Yeah, it's, it's, and you'll notice sometimes, and you'll see this as, it go, as you go forward with things, if it's an out-of-state marriage, that's where sometimes they'll they'll allow an AOP to get entered, an affidavit of parentage, and and it'll be void because there you know there's a marriage and so there's a legal father already, but uh, but it'll sneak through just because it, the the records didn't connect there. Okay, so let's say that me and Robert and my brother Jamie all know what's what. We all know that these kids aren't Roberts. We all know that they're Jamie's. Think of that what you will. Um, <laughs> but we, no one says anything. Everybody just sort of lets it ride. All the kids turn 18. What are the consequences of that? Does it, I mean, if we all sort of have this tacit unspoken agreement that no one's gonna bring it up, are they still the legal product of the marriage? Yes, you know, until there's a court order or something saying otherwise. So the impact that has on those kids' future would be, you know, any, you know, estate matters, you know, so, um, so um, you know, inheriting from Robert and, and that sort of thing or inheriting from Jamie. So they wouldn't be, you know, uh, records of them as, as the children of Jamie. So they wouldn't be able to inherit anything should he pass. Um, so the, they you know, could be king. They could be king when Robert. Well, died. and that's like maybe the benefit where they wouldn't say anything because they're, you know, maybe someone like Cersei 
wants them to be king, you know, or one of the oldest to be king. Um, so, you know, so there's a lot of different, you know, reasonings there, but that's, you know, there is the long-term consequence, you know, and that's usually, you know, for estate planning purposes. Okay. Um, so let's say Jamie's not cool with this anymore. Like he decides I'm not okay with this. I want to claim these children as my own. You know, maybe in this scenario, Robert doesn't know because he's oblivious and drunk all the time. Mm -hmm. So, but Jamie knows, and he wants to publicly acknowledge that these children are his, despite the fact that they are considered um, legally Robert's. What can Jamie do um, as far as challenging what the paternity of these children are under Michigan law currently? So only recently, you know, back in 2013, when Revocation of Paternity Act uh, was, you know, enacted, that's when the door was sort of cracked open a little bit for an alleged father to challenge paternity in a marriage. Prior to that, an alleged father had no standing at all. So Jamie would have just had no opportunity to claim any sort of paternity. Uh, so in, in back in 2013 was when the Revocation of Paternity Act was established. And then, you know, in there, there's a lot of different sections that apply to uh, different ways of how paternity was established to then sort of look to how you can revoke paternity. So, I, you know, I always tell folks to kind of start in, look to the section of how paternity was established. So was it an AOP that was signed? Was it a judgment of affiliation? So a paternity complaint was filed with the court or was it a marriage? So here, Jamie, you know, is trying to crack open a marriage. So he would look to that section of ROPA and, um, and he would look to see if there's a case that's already been filed between um, Cersei and Robert. And if not, he'd file his own complaint to revoke. Um, so it would be a complaint to um, set aside the presumed father and exclude um, the children from the marriage. So, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Ryan, what are you doing? You have I'm doing some Game of Thrones drops, and it's it's John. <laughs> what are you talking? Then Snow, that was kind of thought where I thought you might be going. <laughs> oh, we're gonna get to John. Do not John walk away Snow. from your queen. <laughs> But I, so let's say I'm Jamie and I, because I'm a weak, weak person um, and hardly ever make the right decision, I waited until all these kids were 18. Can I still try and set aside the paternity determination that was sort of automatic because those two were married at the time that the children were born? So... <clears throat> When Jamie's looking to um, establish standing with the court, uh, he, there's uh, uh, some specific requirements for an alleged father to establish standing. And one of those requirements is uh, the age of, of the uh, children. And so it, their kids are supposed to be three or younger. Um, and so if they're older, it really impacts his ability to have standing uh, to file this motion to get genetic testing and move forward in trying to exclude the children from the marriage. Um, there is a, at the back of the Revocation of Paternity Act, a section that asks 
the court to um, look at extending the time frame, the age of the children. And so that's a pretty um, difficult standard. You have to kind of uh, show the court um, sort of these 2.612 type like mistake of fact or reasons why you waited so long. Is there's, there has to be some sort of reason of why you waited so long. And then you, at your, um, you have to show that it's um, gonna be in the children's best interest by clear and convincing evidence. So it's really kind of out of luck if he's waited till after they're three years old. Okay. Um does it does it make any difference if Jamie knew that Cersei was married at the time that these children were conceived? Does that impact his ability to try and set aside the paternity of the husband? It does have it, it causes him problems for sure. So uh, again, there's these standing requirements that are required for an alleged father to to even file this motion. Uh, to get into court uh, for a consideration of genetic testing. Uh, and one of those is that he did not know or have reason to know that the mother was married at the time of conception. So, so if he knew that she was married to Robert, then he again is sort of out of luck. And that's why I kind of say the doors only like cracked open a little bit for these alleged fathers since the 2013, you know, enactment of ROPA. It really, there's some really strict requirements for them to even uh, get get in the door to get that genetic testing. So Jamie would have had to have not known that they were married and the right. kids would have to be under three for him to really have a clear path to move forward with getting DNA testing um, and then seek an order to set aside Robert as the father, right? Right. Okay. Um, so when, and this may be too soon for this question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. If the court orders um, DNA testing, or let's say maybe I'm a real go-getter and I have access to the children, um, could I get a DNA test sort of before there's a court order that the court would accept? And where would I do that? So there's a lot of like kumbaya situations. I like to call them like where everybody sort of like agrees, you know, that um, the alleged father could be the father and everyone just kind of wants to know the answer. And so they'll do, you know, maybe like a drugstore DNA test. And, and so problem with DNA testing is that we need uh, for court, the court admissible three-party test that's legally admissible in court. And that means it has a chain of evidence attached. And, uh, and so that's pretty specific and uh, you'll find it in the Paternity Act, the um, specific rules for the um, DNA testing. Uh, so again, that's a three-party test. So mom, dad, child is, is tested. And the chain of evidence would be that um, photographs are taken of the people that are swabbed, fingerprints are, are taken, and then um, the signatures of the um, lab technician uh, who, who did the DNA testing. A drugstore test, you can, you know, sort of swab the cheek of uh, the father and the child and like mail in that, those 
those back, uh, you know, with as a two-party sort of test results, but it doesn't uh, have a chain of evidence. So we don't know who really was swabbed. So if it does show some sort of exclusion uh, or a 0% probability of paternity, we don't know for sure who was swabbed. So that's where the court requires that three-party test. Are there any two-party tests that are acceptable, like as an evidentiary Issue. I've never really seen one, seen a two-party test that we would accept. So um, where could I find a court accepted three-party test? Like, is it like 1-800-DNA-TEST or? Yep. Oh, that is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> yeah, 1-800-DNA-TEST is a good one. That one has labs all over. Uh, so say you have you know, mom and child living in one city and dad, you know, in another, uh, that you could still get a legally admissible test uh, by going, you know, the, the, they could each go to their own branch that's local to them and convenient. Uh, those are pretty expensive. Um, here at the FOC, we will um, do genetic testing um, on uh, cases that are not um, publicly filed by the prosecutor. So, so, so some of these like that are uh, the DM cases, uh, and so divorce cases. And those are about, I think, $90 total that we do here at the front of the court. And that's just an Oakland County thing, right? That's not all friends of the court. Yeah, but it, it's becoming a little more prominent. So you would ask, I would ask your uh, you know, at your county to see if they're doing any sort of genetic testing on private cases. Okay. Ryan, do you have any questions so far? Are you just completely tuned out? Are you watching basketball? What's happening? No, I'm, this is, I, I told you, I'm not the smart one here. So I'm, I'm just along for the ride. You're also supposed to have jokes though. And <laughs> well, so the, 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 the Jon Snow joke didn't work out too well. Well, it's hard. It's hard for me to hear your drops. So, no, I've got I've got questions. I want I want to lay this phenomenal groundwork that we're doing right now first. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, let's say um, Robert has figured this out because none of the kids look like him, and um, every Baratheon has a particular physical trait that none of these children do. Um, and so now I sobered up one day and figured out that these kids aren't probably mine. What can I do as the presumed father, the legal father? Um, and I'm using those terms correctly, right? Yeah, perfect. Okay. So if I'm married to the woman who gave birth at the time that she gave birth, I'm the presumed father and also the legal father, right? Yep. Okay. Um, so I've clued in and wish to somehow exclude these children from the marriage. How do I do that? Do I have to file a divorce case? Is there some other way for me to exclude them and still stay married to Cersei so she won't kill me? What, what exactly are, is my course of action as the cuckolded father? So he sits in the best position. The presumed father has no time frame for him to crack open, you know, this paternity question. And, uh, and so we had thought in the early stages of ROPA uh, that it had to have been done on, you know, a pre-existing divorce matter, right? A motion to modify, you know, to exclude children on a, a judgment that had already been entered or an existing matter 
Um, but, uh, and so, but we've, case law has said that they can really do it at any time. So they can file a complaint to exclude and not pursue a divorce, uh, you know, and they can just, uh, you know, attach this paternity issue only. Um, they can file a motion within an existing um, case that's been over for years. The judgment's been entered for years. Uh, they can, you know, um, file the motion on a pending matter. So they really are in the position uh, to um, file that motion and ask for that um, certainty, you know, at any time. So really like any time. So let's say all my kids have graduated from state or U of M, depending on your point of view. Um, they've all graduated or from King's Landing College, whatever. Um, and go wild boys. Yeah. They're all over 21. I can, yeah. and we got divorced 10 years ago before these kids all turned 18. Can I mm -hmm. file a motion in my old divorce case to exclude them so they can't inherit my pro I mean, that, the only reason I can think of why you would do that is so they can't inherit. You know, so if you look at ROPA, it does say the three years for the presumed father still. Um, so the idea behind ROPA is not to speak to, you know, these age of majority children, but case law had, has, has reaffirmed um, and time again that a presumed father gets to, you know, ask for this, you know, um, paternity testing at all sorts of stages. And so uh, I haven't seen one, you know, where they're of age of majority, uh, you know, and so uh, maybe. That's an unanswered question by the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court. As far as I know. <laughs> okay. So um, for folks who are, you know, have their own set of the MCL and are trying to find ROPA, what's the statutory site for ROPA? Did I pop quiz you? Sure. MCL. Socratic method. <laughs> I'm like, I'm His Weaver. 722. Uh, 0.1011. Okay. At SEC. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Ryan, you doing okay? No, I'm doing great. I, it, I'm just wondering why we don't do these like more Maury style like courtroom reveals. Is it because it would make the judiciary look silly? <laughs> I just, just imagine like you're sitting in the gallery and you get to open the envelope and you've got like presumed father there and you get to go, you are not the father. I mean, Ryan, Music plays, they, people these, are jumping up and down. Yeah, these matters are like that. I, I, I find them to be like that. The fact so dramatic, the uh, like, Folks involved are, you know, are you know, are usually, you know, kind of in the thick of things. So it's definitely dramatic, and you know, they're, you know, they're pretty intense. That's why they're really, you know, fun to be involved in to try to help out and sort through the facts. You know. Well, and the one thing that I've always noticed about the, those cases is, you know, divorce. Depending upon the case, but divorces can be highly emotionally charged with two people. And in these cases, you've now introduced a third person. So now it's like emotions are just running super high because you've got somebody who thinks they're a dad or a parent who might or might not be, somebody who is legally being recognized as the dad who might or might not be, 
and everybody's pointing fingers at everyone else. Yeah. And it just, it just makes sometimes that, that particular matter just a little bit more difficult to navigate because of, of all the emotion that's like running through. Yeah. And it can be really sad too, you know, because, you know, there'll be a lot of adults in the room talking about these you know, little kids, you know, and sort of what's happening next in their lives. And, you know, and it just, it seems, you know, pretty crazy sometimes with the, with the X involved. And then the, you know, who, who are folks aligning with? So it doesn't ever seem like it's three people in there that are sort of everyone has their own corner. You know, it, it does seem like sometimes it's the Cersei and Robert husband and wife where there's an alleged father, Jamie kind of trying to crack into that and, and establish paternity or it's the, you know, Cersei and Jamie unite, you know, like sort of together with the presumed father, like on that, out, you know, so it, so folks kind of align and yeah, it's, it's very dramatic. I think the other thing that we sort of take for granted is, is how advanced testing has become, not just in terms of reliability, but availability. And, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever talked to attorneys you know, who are much older and wiser than we are, who, and I don't know if these are legitimate stories or if these are like those like tales that have been spun from some part of fantasy that we have just like now heard and accepted as being how things used to be back in the day. But I mean, I've talked to lawyers who have said, oh yeah, before there was DNA testing, you'd bring the kids into court and you'd hold the child up next to dad and the two men and the judge would sort of try to figure out like, is that, you know, who does this child most closely resemble? Are you serious right now? Yeah. Really? But I don't know, but again, I don't know if that's real or if that's just like somebody, like these people just telling me like these stories that are like, yeah, that's not really what happened, but like, it just sounds better. I mean, for the, for, for, for the, for the, you know, look, if you were to, you know, hold Joffrey up next to Jamie or Robert, it was pretty crystal clear who, well, who sure, Joffrey belonged about, to. What about mom who sleeps with two brothers? Like that test isn't going to work in that case. Right. Right. Presuming the brothers look somewhat alike, like it, that's not going to work. So there's a fascinating question. What, what happens if, if mom is sleeping with identical twins? <gasps> what? What happens? They have different DNA, right? Yeah, so there is still that probability of paternity. And so you're looking for a nine, 99.4, I think. You have to fact check that. Fact check. <laughs> yeah. We'll get Monica right on fact check that. Monica from our, um, but, you know, so the probability of paternity, if it's a sibling, it's in the 60s, right? So oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a lower, you know, like there's a connection there, but it's not a paternity connection. So, okay. I think, and I, the tests that I have seen, I've either seen 99 point something right. or like zero, 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 one. Yeah. I've never seen anything that's lower than 99 or right. higher than, you know, 0.01. It seems yeah. pretty certain. So this might be a silly question, and I think I know the answer, but I think it might be something that, that listeners would be curious about. When a child is not yet born, you know, mom's carrying an unborn child, and there's already a dispute as to 
who the father is, there's really nothing that can be done until that child is born, right? So I suppose it, it depends on who you talk to, you know? Um, so I, there is a genetic testing that can be done, you know, during pregnancy. Uh, so, so I've seen folks, you know, do that to sort of resolve things, uh, you know, at that time. That's sort of when people, folks are in agreement and, and that sort of thing. The court's not going to do anything until the child's born. Right. Because all of our rule, all of our laws, like, talk about a, a, a child that's been born, you know, so, so it, it really gets into that dicey area when it's, when it's an unborn child. Right. But I think every so often we will see, you know, something crop up where somebody will be filing an action before a child is born and you're sort of like, well, we need to wait and pump the brakes a little bit here. Um, understanding well, that people for... want to know, but, you know. I, I, do the tests that are like, you know, given prior to a child being born, is there some risk associated with those? I presume that there would be. That's what I, I don't think it's as, as simple as the, as a swab, obviously. Sure. I think it, 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 it does, you know, it's way more invasive. Right. Um, and I guess there's always the risk that the pregnancy won't result in a live birth. So right there you are. Um, well, let me switch gears on you for a moment. Um, you brought up Jon Snow, which I was going to do anyway. He's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> also someone in the Game of Thrones universe who had an issue with his parentage, not just paternity, but all, no one knew who any of his parents were. Um, and for those of you who aren't in the loop on the Game of Thrones stuff, um, at the beginning of the series, John Stark is presented to the audience as the bastard child of Ned Stark. Um, and the running presumption is that it's Ned Stark's child with a lowborn woman, which I'm not exactly sure what that means, but certainly not someone of social status. Um, and is sort of treated poorly by Ned Stark's wife, Caitlin, because of that. Um, but, and spoiler alert, um, late in the series, we find out that Jon Snow is not Ned Stark's child at all. Um, that Jon Stark is the child of Ned's sister, who Ned has taken and raised as his own. Um, so, you know, I don't know that there's any, well, I mean, I, here's a question, and I've actually seen this pop up um, in court cases where one of the parents is deceased, and how do we deal with questions of paternity when one of either the presumed father or the natural mother is deceased? Is there any way to sort that all out once someone is no longer with us? So we can do, you know, a court order there, depending on when they passed and where they passed, there is genetic material that's like preserved. So we've had some success in, in doing genetic testing, you know, postmortem. Uh, you know, it's a little like a, a bit of a weird, you know, process getting the order entered, you know, sort of folks are filing, you know, a complaint what you know right are they is it for paternity 
well, if it's a revocation, you would kind of be still following the same pattern, but you're filing it against someone's estate. So uh, I've seen folks like kind of try to file it where they've made these some errors where they're filing it against the deceased, you know, and so we can't really proceed when it's just the one side and then a deceased party. So we, we certainly need service, you know, to their, you know, their estate or whomever is, you know, well, and, and if it's, if I'm the, um, the, I don't know, potential father, right. And I'm, I can't just serve the estate of the a deceased mother, for example, I'd have to serve her and her husband or, or widower or whatever, right. Everybody right. who has skin in the game, so to speak, has to yeah. be served. Right. And that's kind of where, you know, I, I try to remind folks, you know, Look, so, yeah, constitutional. You're you're the, a a parent, so both the both legal parents, you know, are are always in, you know, have to be addressed and served appropriately with any sort of complaint that's filed. Uh, and so, so no matter, you know, their set, they need to be included, um, no matter how the, the the process is. If it's a new complaint or an existing complaint, um, everyone would need notice. Okay. Um, so let me ask this question. Is there ever, do you know, is there ever a time when sort of everybody's on board, right? So presumed legal father knows that the kid isn't his. Mom knows the kid isn't presumed legal fathers, but is instead, you know, potential fathers. So um, everybody's on board with excluding but they can they do it without a genetic test are there any circumstances in which that's possible so that comes back to sort of how we used to handle matters it was you know the seraphin hearing where you would have a hearing and folks could testify to you know i was in the military overseas for 10 years you know sort of thing so ropa specifically replaces you know any pre-existing um serif it addresses that seraphin hearings you know are no longer to occur but if you look at ropa you know as you go through say standings achieved and you're moving to the next section where it's genetic testing i sort of argue and folks don't some don't agree with me shocking um <laughs> you know who wouldn't agree with you i don't know i want but, names uh, yeah a couple judges <laughs> <laughs> And I just say, hey, this is what I think, you know, do, you know, what you're comfortable with, you know, it's not, I'm not signing the order, you know, you are, right? So when you, if your standing is achieved, you move into the next section of ROPA, and that talks about the genetic testing part, okay? And so it indicates that genetic testing shall be ordered, comma, to assist the court. And so I always kind of argue, you know, is there a situation where it might not assist you? to have genetic testing, right? Like, why would we qualify, you know, that, you know, why would that language be there qualifying it? When would it not assist you? Well, if you already have, you know, the, the legally admissible test, right? Why would we order it again? Like if, if they've already, if they've come to court with the exact test that I'm about to order, why, you know, it says shall order genetic testing, you know, why would I need to order it again well that wouldn't assist me so i should be able to proceed through into the ropa best interest factors which would be the next step of thing you know another reason that it wouldn't assist me would be maybe some of these seraphim reasons you know so that there's the long lost husband right he's been gone 
you know, for all of these years and, and is still, you know, hard to access, right? He's, you know, somewhere overseas or something difficult. And, and again, you're getting enough testimony from everybody that it's not going to assist you. So nothing, you know, there, there hasn't been any, anything from the Court of Appeals that says that's not the case, that, um, that we can't kind of qualify that shell. Uh, so, so that's sort of my position when it comes to, or like someone incarcerated and you have right. the incarceration records for so long, how, how will it assist us to go through, um, you know, a whole thing of, of genetic testing uh, when we know the answer? Uh, so, so, so that's sort of my thoughts there. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen I've seen a hearing like that where um, post ROPA, where mm -hmm. it was really more of a question of did you, you know, to the legal father, did you have access to mom? You know, were there any occasions where you had sexual relations in the last I don't know seven years or whatever? And the kid is five. Um, you know, wh when is the last time that you two had sexual intercourse? Like going through the whole thing about access and who had access and when and how like is there any possibility at all that this person could be the father and then i've got presumed father testifying yes we were you know sexually active and didn't use protect i don't know if they went into the use protection or not but uh, like yeah that's we were together at the time of conception and i had access and mom says he's the only person i was with and everybody's sort of on board I have seen those hearings post ROPA and it like it does make sense to me like why are we the dude was incarcerated in Joliet for 10 years he didn't have access to her and everybody knows she was sleeping with Bobby or whoever the guy is who's saying that he had access to her um, that makes sense to me and I don't I, I agree with you with respect to the language I don't know that I would disagree with you I agree with you Thank you. Well, you're welcome, but it doesn't matter what I think. It does. It makes me feel good. <laughs> um, Ryan? So, ROPA, I think even for seasoned attorneys, can be a little bit tricky to navigate. I, I want to say that we all would agree that it's not as well written as I think it could have been, but maybe it's just me that feels that way. Like when I read it, I feel like they could have structured it and written it a little bit differently to make things a little bit easier to understand. So it, I always come from a place whenever I have ROPA cases and, and whether it's a lawyer's, certainly when it's, you know, pro purge, you're like, you know, you know, it's going to be a little bit tricky to navigate with them. Um, but even with attorneys that they can sometimes get a little bit tripped up on that. So what are some common mistakes and themes that you will see attorneys, since that's essentially our target audience here, um, make whenever they, you know, are either bringing or defending a ROPA action? So I love this question because- um, Thanks, because it's the only question I've really had this whole podcast. My, so my, my, my major tips are always like, first ask who is the current legal father? So who, who is the legal father and how was that paternity established? And then look to that section of, of the act. So people sort of want to jump to the presumed father, a marriage situation. Well, a lot of times that's not how paternity was established. So one of the biggest errors I see is that folks jump into 
you know, the standing requirements of the wrong section. And so if you, if you start a quick analysis of RopaFX is always, who's the legal father, who's your client, and then find, you know, so find your section, find, you know, what, what your client would have to show for standing, and then make sure you're filing it appropriately. Is there a pre-existing case? Then file it within it. If not, you would file your, your new complaint. So, so those are the two main things. Like one, you're in the wrong, whole wrong section. So your standing requirements are, are off and the whole thing is off. Um, and the other would be that uh, you filed a new case and there's a pre-existing case. Um, so so those, those are the major tips is, is really finding your section and making sure that you're right there. And, and it's, it's, it's a really good um, tool to, to look at, you know, who your client is, but, but if you're, if you're with a pair that's a sort of aligning, so say it's the alleged father and mother, you know, maybe it's easy for a mother to, to file and and get standing for her to have the genetic testing or maybe it's easier you know if it's the presumed father right he gets in all the time so 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 really kind of look at um and and take advantage of of some of those you know sections that might be easier especially if you have you know some parties that are aligning okay. i think one thing that i see more often than i would like because i'd like to see it zero and i see it more often than that is the newly filed complaint and let's say they just happen to trip into the wrong section so they've filed it in the right section um it's to establish paternity and for immediate parenting time like right now and i have had to explain to attorneys more than once like there is no father yet this dude is a legal stranger to this child there's no way you're getting parenting time until we've established paternity first right we're not going to be awarding joint legal custody at the EIC or when we don't even know who dad is yet legally. Everybody might sort of be on board biologically with what's happened, right? But we don't have a legal determination of who the father is. So you have no rights as a parent to parenting time or custody or to pay child support, which might be a bonus to some people. Um, but I see that way more often than I would like to. It's shocking to me, sort of. Even just in simple, you know, like paternity complaints, you know, where they'll sort of jump to an ex parte, you know, order or ask for, you know, ex parte custody order. And it's, you know, and it just as you said, we, wait a second, we, you know, we, we've, we've got to establish paternity first. Yeah, and emergency, emergency motion for parenting right. time for a kid that I don't have paternity established for. Right. Well, and in Oakland too, you know, with our EICs on, uh, you know, on paternity cases and even revocation of paternity cases, that's a, a great chance for you to, you know, contact your referee and make sure it's an, it's even appropriate to have an EIC at that time. Because a lot of times it's, it's not, you know, the appropriate smile certainly isn't, you know, appropriate you know, you're really in these early procedural grounds, you know, where you're really working through the procedural stuff versus any family, substantive family matters, you know. Yep. If I catch them, I'll wave them. Like if I catch yeah. that it's a, a revocation issue and everybody's sort of on board and at the end of the day, the two parties to the case that's being set for an EIC are never going to co-parent together, have a nice day. Like I don't want to see you. No, right, right. And it's easier to kind of talk through some of that procedural stuff 
you know, maybe before that, you know, an EIC would happen. But. Yeah, agree. So we are all in this group old enough where we practiced before ROPA and after ROPA. And I remember, you know, when they were debating the legislation and it was going through, I mean, there was a debate even amongst family law attorneys as to whether or not ROPA was a good idea. Did we want to let people open that door to challenge paternity, you know, where somebody was married um, or separated and maybe divorcing, but then reconciling and now we've opened up this door to, to challenging paternity. Um, so my question for Kate was, you know, what do you think could be the next big change as it deals with paternity actions? Like what, what changes could be on the horizon, you know, in the next five to 10 years as we sort of, you know, I, I think morph our ideas of, of, you know, paternity, uh, the nuclear family, that families aren't maybe what they looked like 60, 50 years ago. What, what changes are coming or do you think could be coming? I think that soon the alleged father's path will be easier. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty conservative, uh, obviously we see, you know, it, it 2013 gave them that, I always say crack the door open for them a little bit to get their foot in the door and try to establish paternity. I see, you know, maybe in the next 10 years, some of those standing requirements for the alleged father simplifying. Um, and I also see um, paternity establishment becoming a little more uh, administrative uh, versus like court battle like. So yeah. uh, I, like I see the function of the FOC sort of in that you know, in, in the prosecutor's office, sort of it being less of a prosecutorial system and more of a, you know, you know, if you didn't do it at the hospital, then those two people are coming into the office and, you know, getting things um, handled that way. So, uh, and there's some tools there. So I think that it, that should be on the horizon where it's not as adversarial. How about changes to things, you know, like, if Jamie knew that Cersei and Robert were married and that then precludes him from challenging at the time. I mean, are those changes that you could foresee coming in the future? I'm, I'm thinking so. I'm thinking some of that will have to simplify just given what, you know, our society sort of is, uh, you know, I, I don't know for sure if that would happen. Yeah. But that's the simplifications that I see, you know, for an alleged father. It would have to be some of those re those those requirements, especially the the knowing about the marriage thing, because that is like a little bit, you know, it's not quite equal, right? If you look at what the mother has to show, right? You know, she didn't have to show, right? Like she knows she was married the whole time. Well, and I think it sort of goes to your point about it becoming more administrative and less. Prosecutorial, I think that's a tremendous phrase because when you start having requirements like that, you're now forcing people to, you know, make proof, like prove their case, right? I have to prove that I knew or didn't know something when I guess I feel like as a society, we're maybe moving past that to a, maybe it doesn't matter as much. Like maybe it doesn't matter that 
Jamie knew that Cersei was married to Robert. But the fact that Cersei and Jamie as consenting adults, you know, engaged in sexual intercourse that produced that demon child Joffrey is probably <laughs> is probably less important that Jamie knew who his sister was married to. And only in the context of a Game of Thrones paternity discussion can we use phrases like who his sister was married to. Um, <laughs> which is tremendous. Maybe. No, no. I don't think it's just Game of Thrones. I'm going to say. Put that out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you always need the whiteboard. Right. <laughs> the whiteboard. Um, but, but I think like, you know, like you said, if we sort of view these from the context of it being more administrative to, you know, I always sort of approached it at the end of the day of, you know, a child has the right to know who his parents are, right? And there's a number of reasons, not just emotionally or psychologically, but also medical, why it would be important that a child would know or have access to a biological parent being his legal parent. Um, I love the phrase that you use all the time about, you know, 2013 cracked the door open. I think sometimes people have viewed it. Certainly I know attorneys have filed cases with that have before that have been before me where you, they don't necessarily see it as a crack in the door. It's all right. We're just like, we're here. It's time to like do this thing. And you're like, Whoa, like we got a few steps we got to get through here. And look, we can have like a really great debate about whether or not those things are applicable in 2021 and moving forward. But I really do think, you know, as as society evolves, we're going to have to look at how we evolve that law and paternity law so that are we are we on team Ryan that you know the child should have mom and dad actually be mom and dad or are we on team you know I I I know the attorney who who was interviewed in the free press article about it, I don't know, like probably 10 years ago now when they were debating the Ropa thing and I won't say who it was. Um but he was very staunch in terms of like, no, like we shouldn't have something like ROPA. We should not be letting people come in and disrupt marriages. And I understand it from a practical standpoint, right? Like it would be if if Robert and Cersei were, you know, monogamous to one another and Jamie just filed a bogus complaint, right? It is disruptive to somebody's life. And I understand that. But I think we need to get past the point of making these things, you know, fact driven about what someone knew or didn't versus let's make it fact driven about what actually happened. Well, and I wonder if that like knew she was married or whatever is really sort of getting at what goes unsaid in Ropa, which is sometimes there's someone who is an emotional and psychological father who's not a biological father. And that's why we have a limit on three years old. And that's why we talk about whether or not someone knew that someone was married because that I don't care. Like I say this all the time, I don't really care what happens with the parents, but that child is entitled to have some psychological security and consistency. And the concern I think at the time was if we allow interlopers to come in, they're going to blow it all up. And then we've got kids who are a bastardized to use an ancient term and B have children who are sustaining psychological damage because we're saying, yeah, we know that we've been acting like this guy's your dad, but now this guy's your dad. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, I think it, it, But I think that's why time limits are okay. I guess I've just always sort of thought like what someone knew might not be as important as 
Right. Well, and it's interesting, like they never say, like, there's no obligation on the woman to disclose up front, like, hey, BTW, I'm married. (laughs) (laughs) No one asks her to be making like a non-fraudulent disclosure about her marital status. Hey, before we get into this, I got to let you know, (laughs) I may or may not be married to the king. That's right. Struggle is, is, you know, sort of the mother's the, uh, the sort of equity piece of, of the alleged father, you know, it's burden, you know, where, you know, the, you know, it's, it, it's, it's such a, a high burden. And just like, you know, DeCoster was saying, you know, it's, it, it's, it, you know, it is to protect this from, you know, sort of interlopers, but, you know, then, then the, the similar standing requirements aren't as, as difficult for, for the mother. And, um, it's just, you know, it seems, because it's not, so when it's plays out being true, people are telling, you know, the child all sorts of things, right, as we know, right? And so, uh, you know, so I, it just, you know, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. We'll need to do this again in 10 years and see where we're at. Well, I don't want to wait 10 years for you to be on the podcast again, so. No, we're not waiting 10 years for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay. Right. We'll, we're we'll, just waiting 10 years to have this discussion again. <laughs> we have all kinds of other things to talk about. So oh, many okay. things. <laughs> all right. We're at our hour, and I think people will start to space out. So, Well, I just want to thank you, Kate Weaver, for joining yes. us today and taking the time and lending us your expertise and putting up with our inane and silly questions. And if anybody, I don't even care if you're listening in Alabama, if you have a ROPA question, email Kate Weaver, because she would love to I really would. field all of those inquiries. <laughs> you know, and they really are fun. So I'm, I'm very open to helping out. And you are, you are the expert, Kate. You oh, are okay. the expert. Yeah. So. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I am so proud. I, I feel like I need like a plaque about being your first guest. Uh, you we should, will. We should get a plaque. Or a car mug. mug. <laughs> no mug, no mug. We will work on that. We got, we got some ideas to spit around now. I think that's a great idea, Ryan. Should we do like premium gifts for our guests that are a coffee <laughs> mug that we ordered off of Etsy? I mean, other talk shows do. I think that's a great idea. What do you think Joe Rogan gives his guests besides not giving them a vaccination? I don't, well, I don't listen to that podcast, but um, <laughs> probably a gift basket, but we can't, we don't have any sponsors or money. Right. It might be like a mug with like one K-pod in it. Like, <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> perfect. Thanks guys. Thank you. Till Kate. next time.